I'm a good guy, by anyone's standard, I think. I have a wife and kids that love me. I own my own business. I go to church. I've got things under control. So much so that I rarely have to bother God for anything. I can go along for weeks, maybe months, where I feel pretty happy. I suppose there's nothing really wrong with that, but Jesus says it can be a trap. We actually aren't in control of much, other than our own actions. Being poor in spirit means that we know that we are completely sinful and that there's no sense in being confident in anything other than God. The world wants us to strive for and flaunt our independence. But eventually, we all find out that it's temporary. We will eventually come to the end of ourselves. Our efforts, our strength, our wisdom. Jesus says we're blessed when we actually give our dependence to God. Humility is not believing we're nothing, but understanding we are something when standing next to Jesus. It's actually a relief. I don't want to be in charge anymore. Greetings to all of our church family here at Central Campus and also those of you who are gathering together at uh, our campus down in Bridgeland, out in Airdrie, and uh, the Northwest Regional that's meeting in the Crowfoot Theatres. Uh, after being gone for six months on sabbatical, uh, we were overwhelmed by the warm welcome we received from so many of you uh, last week, although uh, last night I talked to someone uh, who didn't know I had been gone. Uh, <laughs> And so I welcomed him back. Uh, <laughs> a messenger from God to encourage humility. That's always a good thing. I love the story of a man named uh, Bert who went to a doctor and after hearing Bert explain his health issue, uh, the doctor said, um, you know, I, I'm sure that I have an answer to your, your problem. And uh, Bert responded, well, that's a relief to hear uh, because, uh, you know, I really should have come to you a long time ago. And the doctor asked, so where did you go to before? And uh, Bert said, well, I went to the pharmacist. The pharmacist, said the doctor snidely, what kind of foolish advice did he give you? Well, he told me to come see you. <laughs> now, while that may strike us as funny, the truth is when it comes to the eternal questions of life, many people look for answers in all the wrong places. Ben was such a person. Author James Smith writes how he met Ben a number of years ago through a summer job that he had at a uh, retirement community. And ben was a rather miserable, crusty old fellow who had no visitors and uh, who rarely uh, left his room. One day, however, he um, requested to meet with James, and initially he wanted to talk about philosophy and religion. Uh, and James was quite surprised at how much of that subject he knew. 
And uh, as they continued to meet and talk, it did become apparent, though, to James that, that Ben really had another agenda. And, and that was, he had a great deal of remorse uh, for the way that he lived his life, and he really wanted someone to confess to, and James was the guy. Ben then shared this. I was born in 1910. I made my first million when I was 25 years old. By the age of 45, I was the richest man in my state. Politicians wanted to be my friend. I lied, cheated, and stole from whoever I could. My motto was simple, take all you can from whoever you can. I amassed wealth and everyone was impressed with me. I had a lot of power in those days. I had 2,000 employees, and all of them looked up to me or were afraid of me. Money was all that I really cared about. I had three wives, all who left me either because of neglect on my part or because they caught me in one of my many affairs. I have one daughter who is now in her 40s, but she refuses to speak to me. I suppose you could say I ruined my life because today I have nothing really. Oh, I still have a lot of money, more money than I could ever spend. But that brings me no joy. I sit here each day waiting to die. I have nothing but bad memories. I cared about no one in my life and now no one cares about me. You, young man, is all that I have. Max Lucado, in his book, The Applause of Heaven, he tells the story of a man named Robert Reed. Robert's hands are twisted and his feet are useless. He can't bathe himself, can't feed himself, he can't brush his teeth, comb his hair, or put on his underwear. His shirts are held together by strips of Velcro. His speech drags like a worn-out audio cassette. Robert has cerebral palsy. The disease keeps him from doing things most of us take for granted, like driving a car, riding a bike, or going for a walk. But it didn't keep him from graduating from university while uh, with a degree in Latin. Having cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at a junior college or venturing overseas on five different mission trips. It didn't prevent him from becoming a missionary in Portugal. Years ago, he moved to Lisbon alone, where he rented a hotel room and began to study Portuguese. He found a restaurant owner who would feed him after the rush hour at the restaurant. He also found a tutor who would instruct him in Portuguese. And then he would station himself daily in a park where he distributed brochures about his best friend, Jesus. Within six years, he had introduced over 70 people to the Lord. Lakato describes a service that he attended in which Robert was the guest speaker. He says, I watched other men carry him in his wheelchair onto the platform. I watched them lay a Bible in his lap. I watched his stiff fingers force open the pages. And I watched people in the audience wipe away tears of admiration from their faces. 
Robert could have asked for sympathy or pity. But instead he held his bent hand up in the air and at the top of his lungs shouted out, I have everything I need for joy. Now both of these stories are true. And I believe they have something to say to each one of us. One man had everything this world has to offer. Everything that many people will sell their souls to achieve and to get. And yet he ends up alone, bitter, and despairing of life itself. The other has very little of what this world has to offer. And yet he boldly proclaims wherever he goes, I have everything I need for joy. You know, research tells us that over 85% of us have one overarching goal or desire in life, and that is to be happy. Nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. I've never met anyone who said, my goal in life is to live a boring, miserable, meaningless life. Ben wanted to be happy. He did not decide at a young age, I think I'm going to make a series of decisions, a series of selfish decisions that are going to ultimately ruin my life. He thought he was pursuing joy and contentment. The problem is he embraced a set of beliefs and values from a certain kingdom that were a crock of baloney, a pack of lies. As I indicated last time in the introduction to this series, we may all live in the same country called Canada, but we live for different kingdoms, whether we realize it or not. Here in Canada, I believe there are at least two kingdoms that seek to captivate our attention and grab our allegiance. One kingdom could be called the kingdom of this world or the earthly kingdom. The other kingdom is the kingdom of God or the heavenly kingdom, which Jesus talks about all the way through the gospel of Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John. The earthly kingdom attempts to convince us that happiness, success, and contentment is found in living the good life, a life that's filled with money, sex, and power. This earthly kingdom boldly asserts that it's all about you. You are the center of the universe, and therefore you deserve to be happy. So look out for number one. Don't suppress your desires. If it feels good, do it. Now, obviously, this is the kingdom that Ben embraced and gave his life to. Too late, he discovered that the gods that he'd been worshiping as part of this kingdom were counterfeit gods that let him down big time. And now he was all alone, with no hope and living with a lot of regret. My question to you is, is when you examine what you're giving your life to, and I mean, really sit back and be honest, which kingdom are you really living for? The one that Ben lived for? Or the one that Robert embraced? Jesus came to bring hope. 
a lasting hope by inviting us to be part of his eternal kingdom. He came to turn our thinking, our attitudes, our values, our desires right side up. Actually, the way that God had intended it in the beginning when he first created us. When Jesus began teaching about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 5, he said, people who are part of my kingdom are blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? To be blessed means to be content. It means to be deeply satisfied. It means to be joyful. I use the word joyful rather than happy because happiness is linked to our circumstances and we know our circumstances can change daily. If life is good, we're happy, therefore, and if life isn't so good, well, then we're miserable. But you see, unlike happiness, joy is not based on our circumstances. Joy is based on our certainties. The certainty that God is in control and that he can be trusted. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him in all things. Joy is based on the truth of Romans 8 that even when we're facing difficult circumstances, when nothing is making much sense in our lives and feels very much out of control, we can know that our God is in control and that he has our best interests at heart, whether it feels like it or not, and that he can be trusted. The Bible teaches that when we by faith embrace him as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit invades our lives and begins to transform us into the image of King Jesus. Which is not something that we achieve in our own strength. No, it's a supernatural work that God's Spirit performs in each one of us. Jesus taught that those who belong to his kingdom will increasingly display the following supernatural evidences of God's Spirit living and working through us. Here they are. They are humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They grieve over the things that God grieves over. Blessed are those who mourn. They are not preoccupied with themselves. Blessed are the meek. They long to know and to be like Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They extend grace and compassion to others. Blessed are the merciful. They have a single-minded devotion to Christ's agenda. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're devoted to helping people be at peace with God and with one another. Blessed are the peacemakers. They expect resistance and the high cost 
of living all out for Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now let me be very clear that Jesus is not giving us a list of virtues here or a list of legalistic requirements that we must somehow achieve if we want him to be happy with us or for that matter, if we're going to get to heaven when we die. No, he is not describing here what we must achieve. He is describing what the Holy Spirit will do in each of us as we daily surrender our lives to him and cultivate our friendship with him. This will be the evidence. In other words, joy is not something you seek after. It is something that the Holy Spirit blesses you with as you pursue God and his agenda with your life. So how do you become part of the kingdom of God? Well, the short answer is we need to repent. When Jesus began to talk about the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew chapter 4, the very first thing, at least that's recorded, that he says about the kingdom is repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. What does it mean to repent? To repent means that we turn around. We go in the opposite direction that we've been going. We, we change our mind, our way of thinking about things. We soften our hearts. Our whole way of thinking, our whole mindset, our heart attitudes need to be turned right side up. Polar opposite to the values and the beliefs that we've been exposed to in the kingdom of the world. And here in the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us a pretty detailed picture of how our attitudes and our inner life will be different. What it actually looks like when we turn around, when we repent, what our life's going to look like. And he starts out in verse 3 saying this. Look at it in your scriptures, Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where repentance begins. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, to be poor in spirit, first of all, is to acknowledge that I am sinful, that I am utterly helpless to save myself, that I am spiritually bankrupt, and that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope for me to even enter the kingdom of heaven, much less live with Jesus forever in heaven. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In this, Jesus wasn't saying that rich people are especially evil or that he loves them less, or that they are doomed to be eternally lost. Not at all. What he was saying is, because rich people have a lot of resources, the temptation they face is to put off acknowledging their need for God. To do it their way. 
That's the temptation. Believing that their significance and security can be found in things other than God. And in the end, so many fail to come to that place of humbly acknowledging their need of God. And that he is the only way. The good news of the kingdom is there is no elitism in the kingdom of God. There's no dress code, there's no membership fee or special privileges for the wealthy once you're in. It's a level playing field. Which means regardless of your status in society or even the regrets that you have about your past that you feel make you totally unworthy to God, if you realize that you are spiritually poor, then you are truly blessed. That's what Jesus said. You are truly blessed because on the merits of what Jesus did for you on the cross, the kingdom of heaven is open to you. Not on the merits of what you've accomplished or didn't accomplish. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Furthermore, to be poor in spirit means we admit we don't have it all together. Let's face it, we try so hard to leave the impression that we have it all together. I mean, you know, we come to church. You know, most of us are dressed in our finest. Even if we're not, we come in and we feel, we, 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 we give the appearance like we have it all together. And many times we fake it. We mask and we try to cover up what's really going on inside of us. In Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees had it all together. I mean, these guys, they lived, um, you know, kind of the perfect life, or at least tried to, and gave the impression that they were close to doing it. And so here Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that, that of, the right, of the Pharisees. And, 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 you know, the people of that day and, and we today go, are, are you kidding me? That's impossible. But you see, the Pharisees, they worked overtime to look good on the outside because Jesus saw their heart. And if you go over to Matthew um, chapter 23, he said that their inner life was filthy, filled with pride. Hypocrisy. Jesus is calling us to be real. The poor in spirit are real. The poor in spirit face the truth about who we really are. In John 8, 32, Jesus said, Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, isn't it true we, we, we love it when someone digs up some dirt, exposes the truth about someone else? Oh, really? Really? Ooh, no kidding. 
But next time you find yourself relishing news like that, imagine your response when you discover that someone else is telling or digging up dirt about you and communicating it to someone else. We love to hear the truth about other people, but we hate it when it's told about us. We hate it because we're afraid. That if people see our weakness, if they saw us the way that we really are, if they knew about our sin, if they realized that there are times that we're phony, that we're fakes, they'd reject us. they look down on us. They wouldn't like us. And so we wear ourselves out trying to cover up and to protect our image. This is what happened to King David. He tried to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. But over time, he lost his joy. He actually grew physically weak and ill. In Psalm chapter 32, verse 3, this is what he writes about his experience of trying to cover up his sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David was miserable trying to hide his sin. Miserable trying to be a fake. Friends, faking it, wearing masks, pretending just frustrates you. It wears you out. When you are real, when you are open and honest about your struggles and your limitations and your weaknesses, you will not only experience joy, but you will be blessed with many authentic friends. Because let's face it, are you drawn to someone who knows it all? Or at least thinks they know it all? Are you drawn to people like that? Are you drawn to people who, you know, just leave this air that they've got it all together? No. Maybe you are, but I'm not. You see, if you want to be forgiven, then confess your sin to God. If you want healing, confess your sin to one or two others that you really trust in. Because you're going to bring it into the light and it's going to begin the process of healing. You know, for years now, Gwen and I have had the privilege of attending the Freedom Session graduation service in which the graduates tell their story not only of the challenges that they faced in life, but how they found freedom through the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. As we listened to each story, I was moved by their transparency. I, I was moved by their honesty and their humility and their tears of remorse and their newfound joy in Jesus Christ. And when the evening was over, you know, I found myself thinking... This is the church. This is the way that the church should be. And friends, this is what I pray our church will increasingly be. 
A church where there's no pretense, a church where there's no attempts to impress just real, ordinary people who aren't perfect, but who love Jesus and who celebrate the fact that they are in Jesus and that Jesus is in them. You know, I often hear people say, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. And I don't want to minimize that because I grew up in a dysfunctional family. And I don't want to make light of difficult home situations, the impact that they've had. But let's face it, we've all grown up in dysfunctional families. The only, the only family that I know of that never was dysfunctional growing up was Adam and Eve's. And there's still a lot of dysfunction in all of us. Yes, I know theologically speaking that as Christ followers, our Heavenly Father sees, and because we're in Christ and Christ is in us, that our Heavenly Father sees us as righteous and whole and complete. But let's be honest, we are still capable of selfishness, of hurt and sin, promoting our own little kingdom. And let's just stop pretending like we're perfect and like we, like we have no problems. I mean, if you're perfect, please go find another church. <laughs> and if you find one that is perfect, please don't join it because you'll wreck it. <laughs> Without taking anything away from God's call for us to be a holy people, let's just acknowledge that we're growing to be more like Christ. We're on this journey. And my prayer is, is that people will walk into our services and as they walk into our small groups that, that meet uh, this week and in the weeks to come in neighborhoods all over this city, my prayer is, is that they will meet people who are down to earth, who are genuinely, who genuinely love Jesus and genuinely love others. People who are real and open and honest and aren't afraid to admit that they don't have it all together. And can really empathize with other people who don't have it all together. I mean, if that's the kind of church you want to be part of, then say amen. 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 Say amen. Yeah. Furthermore, to be poor in spirit means to live each day in humble dependence on God. In Mark 10, 15, Jesus took a child in his arms and he said, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. There are many qualities about a child to be admired. You know, the way they love unconditionally, the way they forgive so quickly. We could go on and on. But I believe Jesus was referring primarily to the childlike inclination to live each day in dependence and trust in those who are in authority over them. They just trust so genuinely. Have you ever noticed that? And that takes humility. James 4, 6 says that God, gives, uh, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
To be humble means that I do not have an inflated spirit. It means that I believe to the core of my being that God is God and I'm not. See, so many of our problems and our sinful behaviors stem from our desire to be in control, to be our own God, to be in charge of our own kingdom. We want to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We, want, we, we just don't want anyone telling us what to do. In essence, we want to be God. We think, well, I know that God says that I should do this, or I know that God says I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Rather than acknowledging our pain to God and asking for his help, we deny it. We, we try to postpone it by drinking alcohol or taking drugs or overeating. Or we try to avoid it by withdrawing from other people. Or we try to escape it through traveling or through sports or through constantly spending money or just jumping in and out of relationships. All of these are examples of how we attempt to play God. Whenever God tells us to do something and we don't do it, we're playing God. We're saying, God, I don't trust you. I know better than you do what's best for me. Now, you know, Jesus is God. And when he came to earth, he deliberately set aside his divine prerogatives. He experienced life fully as you and I do. And all the while that he was on this planet, he lived in humble dependence upon his heavenly Father, even as he now calls on you and me to live in humble dependence on him. John uh, 5.19, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. Well, we know that Jesus being God, he can do everything. But he chooses to do nothing by himself. He can do, he, he can do only what he sees his Father doing. In John 14.10, Jesus says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Isn't it interesting that when you become a Christ follower... We are in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. And when Jesus was on the planet, he said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. In numerous passages like this, we read that Jesus made a deliberate choice to live in absolute dependence upon his heavenly Father and friends, he now calls on us who are in him and in, him, and in whom he is in. He calls on us to live in humble dependence upon him. This means that we include him in our day. We ask him for his help when we need it. It means we're humble enough to be honest with one or two others about stuff in our life. And we give them permission to be brutally honest with us and to help us in our time of need. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. 
That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, let's be honest. Being poor in spirit doesn't come easily to us. We don't like to admit that we need anybody. Deep down inside, our pride, you know, makes us want to do it ourselves. To be independent, to be self-sufficient. Pastor Brian Wilkerson says, admitting that we're needy and dependent doesn't come easily to well-fed, well-educated, upwardly mobile North Americans. Self-improvement is a billion-dollar industry. Poor in spirit doesn't play well in the corporate world. It doesn't play well on the athletic field. It doesn't play well in the political arena. It doesn't play well anywhere in the kingdom of this world. You see, the world, the kingdom of this world, has its own idea of blessedness. Blessed is the person who is strong and confident. Yeah, that's my kind of guy. Blessed is he who is rich, powerful, and popular. Needy, dependent, desperate is about the last thing that people in the kingdom of the world want to be. But until we are, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven isn't available to us. Please understand me. The life of God's kingdom, the joy of God's kingdom is available only to those who sincerely admit that they are needy, dependent, and desperate for God. Now, there are numerous pathways that lead to poverty of spirit. Sometimes our own mistakes or habitual sins bring us to our knees, bring us to a place where we realize our desperation for God, like the addict who finally hits rock bottom losing his job and then his family and and then his health and through it all finally realizes that he is powerless to resolve his problem in his own strength and he turns to God for help. Sometimes it takes hardships, unfortunate circumstances to bring us to a place of desperation. There's a popular country song right now, a music song that I, I don't know the gal that sings it. I don't know anything about her life. I'm not you know, putting a stamp of approval on that person because I don't know any of that. I'm just referring to the song. It's a song that tells a story that many people can identify with. It's about a young single mom who's falling apart emotionally. She's low on faith. She's low on cash. She's low on gas. And as she's driving, she hits a patch of ice, which for her is about the last straw. Her life and now her vehicle is out of control. And she finally, in desperation, turns to God and says, Jesus, please take the wheel. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus, take the wheel. 
I want to close our time by introducing you to Phil, who's going to share his story of how desperate circumstances were used by God to bring him to himself. From a life of independence and hostility toward the Lord, he has become a tender, humble servant of Christ, living freedom in Christ. Someone who is poor in spirit. Would you please welcome Phil as he shares? Uh, it was about, I guess, almost eight years ago, and I was sitting in the hospital, and uh, next to me was my mother. She was dying of pancreatic cancer, and she was about to take her last breath. And uh, I was holding her hand, and, and uh, I, I wanted to be there in that last moment with her. And uh, I wasn't a believer in Jesus, and, and I don't think my mom was either. But I remember holding her hand, and there was a part of me that was really wondering, am I going to be able to experience something here when she passes away? Is something going to, am I going to feel something? And uh, as she took her last breath, um, I didn't feel, I didn't feel anything. And uh, I just remember wondering about God at that time, and I remember it, it struck me. And um, Yeah, four months later, um, my wife came to me, and, and she said that she wasn't sure she wanted to be in our marriage anymore. And uh, I was absolutely devastated. Um, but I had to admit that I was in a, so much denial about how my sexual addiction, my exploiting of her, um, and, and just using her in ways that, you know, were damaging her and the family, my, uh, my addiction to pornography as well, and lust was just so, so much a part of my life. I just finally had to look at that and recognize that I was destroying this family. I, uh, I, I really didn't know what to do. Um, and for me, those were the two big crutches in my life. My big crutch was on, one of them was my acceptance from my wife um, and just needing her to fill the void that I felt inside. And the other crutch was my sexual addiction where I would turn to for help. And. Uh, yeah, it was like God had to knock away both of those crutches for me to fall to my knees and realize that I don't know what I'm doing, that I need, I need God. I, uh, I was suicidal, and uh, I got into recovery and, uh, for sexual addiction, and uh, I, I was in a 12-step program. And they talk about a higher power in that program, and uh, I struggled with that. That was something that I, I was an atheist, um, and... Uh, I really looked down on Christians. I saw a lot of hypocrisy with the Christians that I had known in my past. I criticized them. I was afraid when people thought I was a Christian, I would make sure that they were clearly understood that I had nothing to do with Christianity and that I did not believe in it. I didn't like the word God. I especially didn't like the word Jesus. It just would make me run away. Um, so there I was in this program, and I just thought, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. I had nowhere else to turn. I couldn't turn to my addictions anymore. I recognized what they were doing, and I was destroying uh, just so many different relationships in my life, and I could finally see that. Uh, and then at that time, I, I started, I, I thought about Jesus and how he said that he was God. And I said, well, I just want to see what he has to say. So I, I picked up a Bible, and I started to read it. And at that time, I... Uh, my wife found the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And it's a book that I needed. It was sort of the evidence for Christ. It was, 
It needed to prove to me that Jesus was real because I, I, didn't, I couldn't believe that he really was real. And Lee Strobel goes through the, um, the Old Testament, the New Testament, he talks about all the evidence that Jesus is real, that this isn't a fairy tale, that this is real, and that um, he, is very, he can be a very much a big part of our lives if we accept that. Since uh, accepting Jesus, actually, sorry, when I came here, um, uh, a friend of mine brought me here to the service uh, that Henry was leading on the Why Believe series. It was the very last one. I came here and I listened to the sermon. It was very powerful. It was the very first time I attended Center Street Church. And at the end of the service, Henry asked if uh, would anyone, you know, felt God was tugging at their heart if they'd like to come to the front and accept Jesus. And God was certainly tugging at my heart. And, and I came to the front and I accepted Jesus into my heart. Um, so since accepting Christ, I've, I've been very blessed. Um, my life truly um, has just been filled with so much love and relationships and richness and joy. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very blessed because my ex-wife, actually she's here today and I'm, I'm just grateful that she came. And uh, um, she brought my daughter and uh, I just, she's treated me with a lot of respect and kindness. And uh, I, I've, we are able to co-parent our kids in a way that is, I believe, uh, what, what we need to strive to do. Um, and uh, just the people that have been in my life, the Christian mentors that I've had, the people that are strong believers, I've been very blessed just to have them to, to walk me through this, this journey, uh, drawing close to Christ. And uh, I'm just, you know, I can't describe just how great my life has been since accepting Christ. And it doesn't mean life's problems go away, but it means I have someone to draw strength from, that I'm not in control, that God has this in control, even though if I don't understand it, and I can trust his plan completely. And uh, that's what I have to, to rest my faith on and just keep him at the center of my life. So thank you for, for listening. Thanks. Thanks. Well, thanks again, Phil. What an amazing story of God's grace. And Phil's story reminds us that, you know, regardless of what we've done, the pain that we've experienced, all of us have the opportunity to repent, to change our mind about the pathway that we're traveling on and to turn around and to follow the wisest, most loving teacher that ever walked on the face of this planet, Jesus. What's keeping you, what's holding you back from letting go? From acknowledging that you can't solve things in your own power, that you can't Make it to heaven on your own. That you need God to do what only he can do. When are you going to acknowledge that you are not God and that you're incapable of living victoriously without him? Make no mistake, friend. Whatever you refuse to give to him will be the source of your greatest worry, fear, pain, and frustration. If you say, Lord Jesus, I'll give you everything but my finances, then mark my words, the source of your greatest frustration will be your finances. They'll keep you up at night. If you say, Lord Jesus, I'll give you everything but my sex life, mark my word, 
that will be the source of your greatest frustration and pain. You will never know true joy. To be poor in spirit means you have to give him all of your life. It's total surrender. It's saying, I put it all in your hands, Lord. As your pastor, I beg of you, don't wait until you hit rock bottom or don't wait to just before you take your last breath to repent, to change your mind, to turn around and embrace his grace and forgiveness and enjoy and experience the adventure that he has for you. When he's at the center of your life, when he's at the wheel, And you're just following him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We're just going to take a moment. We're going to give a, t- a little time here for silence. A time for each of you to talk to God about what you've heard him say to you. And to respond to him. I mean, if you feel him tugging at your, your heart right now. I'm going to invite you to come up here, to get up out of your seat and just come up here and kneel here at the altar and talk to him about what he's talking to you about. Coming up here isn't what's going to change things. It's just your way of communicating the sincerity and the desire of your heart. But make your peace with God.
Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to ask the prayer partners, pastors, if you'd come forward and just uh, be available to those who have come forward here. If they'd like you to pray with them, please do. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I want to uh, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. And the provision he made, Lord, through his death on the cross for us to be reconciled with you and also with one another. I want to thank you for your love for us, which is staggering to even try to fathom. And thank you, Lord, for the truth that you communicated to us, Lord, that it is those who are poor in spirit, Lord, who enter your kingdom, who experience the blessedness of your kingdom, who reflect the attitudes, the values of your kingdom, and experience the joy of the Lord. Thank you for making that possible, and for helping us to realize it really starts by giving up and embracing you, surrendering all to you. I pray, Lord, for people here who are still fighting you. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just keep, um, I guess, keep badgering them. They won't put this on a back burner, Lord. They, they'll, they'll come to grips. They'll deal with this issue of where they stand with you. that they'll talk to whoever they need to talk to, that they'll read what they need to read, that they'll find answers to the questions that they're wrestling with. But Lord, they will seek you even as you are pursuing them. Remind them even right now that you love them. We love you, Lord. We commit this day and our lives anew to you. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you.